my name is Adam Canal, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise Podcast. Alright, fantastic, man. Fantastic. Yeah, it's it's been um it's been kind of interesting lately. I mean, like, I don't know how you've been feeling with with COVID and stuff. It's uh I don't know. I guess it's kind of it's like everything's opening up now, but at the same time, we're all still kind of like, what should we be going out? Yeah, you know? for sure. And uh I don't know how how are you feeling with that? Because you're in Florida, right? Yeah, yeah. It's been interesting. Um I'm getting to the point where I need to go out, you know, a little bit just because I'm going a little stir crazy. Um, so like, for instance, this, some people may frown on this, but my sister and I went to Universal recently mm. and like we followed all their safety precautions and everything and we both didn't get sick. So, you know, there's, there's ways to go out and be safe and make sure that you do get that mental health energy you need because, <laughs> you know, like we've been inside for all summer and that's, that's pretty rough. So make sure for me, like I've needed to do some stuff like that where I need to go out, but, um, yeah, I mean, it hasn't been terrible, but I'm getting to the point now where I'm getting a little over it. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I'm totally with you on that, man. And and that's that's important. I think I think that's something with COVID too. During this whole time, with like when the quarantine happened and stuff, is, mm -hmm. is people are starting to realize like, wow, I really need to, like you said, like focus on my mental health. Yeah, you know, and being cooped up like this for so long, it's I don't think that it's natural for us. You know? No, for sure. Yeah, especially the people who are a little bit more extroverted. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so that's why I was saying a moment ago, like it's it's challenging to try to navigate like how much should I be doing or or where where should I be going, where shouldn't I be going? Mm -hmm. You know, and um and I totally know what you're saying with with wanting to go to places and be like, well, let's let's go. I'm tired. Yeah. I'm tired of being inside, you know. <laughs> do do you find like you have to uh, remind yourself certain days to go outside or is it just like oh, 100%. now? 100%. Yep. <laughs> I mean, my default mode is potato mode. So it's like, if I'm not consciously thinking about doing stuff, I will just sit there all day. You know? Right. <laughs> well, I think I also feel like that's kind of part of being a musician, especially a college trained musician. Mm -hmm. We're so used to being in our little boxes. You yeah, know? for sure. So uh, how, how do you like, do you have any sort of way where you're like, okay, uh, like something that reminds you to go outside or like at least be a person. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Being a person. Yeah. Um, I, I like have an Apple watch and that has like little reminders to stand up and like activity stuff that it reminds you to do. Mm. And that's not like a ton of activity, but like going on a walk every day, you know, that's enough to fulfill the requirements of most of the time of what the Apple watch asks you to do. <laughs> so yeah. little things like that, where it's just like little reminders to actually get up and get out. And then my roommate has a dog. So we'll go walk the dog every night or a couple weeks a night. Oh, a my couple God. days a week. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, having a dog is a, is like, that's like a natural reminder that you have yeah, to go outside sure. unless you have like a, a fenced in yard. You could just open the door and be like, <laughs> go. <mode>. Yeah. <laughs> And that's only just reinforcing the whole musician mentality, you know? Really, though? <laughs> I wonder, like, how how are you in, do you do much jazz at all? Not really at all, no. <laughs> I kind of wonder if jazz musicians are a little bit opposite to classical performers, like where they are more extroverted in a way, you know? Potentially, I don't know. I almost feel like jazz takes more time to practice to get like really good. I don't know. Cause you have to like improvise in all 12 keys and like 
do that flawlessly all the time. So I don't know. I have no clue. I haven't seen any correlation. Yeah, I haven't either. I just sort of thought about that, you know, because it's like part of jazz is is the improvisation and then doing it on the spot, like, yeah. you know, and um, the jazz environment, like going to a club and stuff and performing, it's so much more looser, you yeah, know? Yeah, that's true. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine talking about um, posture as an mm. instrumentalist. And <clears throat> we were talking about how in jazz, I don't, I, I don't, I never studied jazz, so I don't know. It's just pure speculation, but I, I, is that much of a discussion, you know, because they're going from, if they're in a big band, they're going from sitting down to standing up and soloing, or they're just kind of like standing there off to the side, like tapping along, you know, and uh, uh, like specifically for instruments, like the baritone saxophone, right? Mm. That's one that it's like, that weighs you down. Yeah. So. Yeah, I feel like posture is definitely something that is talked about more often now in the classical world. I have no clue about the jazz world because I'm not really in it too much. But that's something that I've had to be really conscious of because I'm doing like an Alberry recital this semester. So you have to really be conscious of like where you're distributing weight and how long you stand, how lo how you're standing. So that's definitely something that's always on my mind for sure. <laughs> sure. So how are you how are you navigating that? Like, are you using anything to prop it up or like what do you what is your your method for doing that? Um, typically I'll just take breaks cause you know, it's like, it's, it's just tiring after a while having, especially standing up. So most often when I'm practicing, since I want to practice in longer sessions, I'll just sit down cause that's easier and less strain on the body. Mm -hmm. But then I'll notice myself kind of hunching over. So <laughs> I have to be careful of that too. But whenever I'm standing, whenever I'm like in between pieces, I'll just take it off my neck and hold it on the ground just to give myself a little bit of a break. Mm. Yeah, so kind of doing it in like little stints and stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Kind of like kind of like exercise where you you take breaks between your sets. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Do what what is like what is the device you're using to to hold up the saxophone? I have a breathtaking neck strap. Um, I have one of the um potential berry specific ones that they have right now that they're testing out. So it, it's just a little bit thicker leather, so it's not gonna like bend as much when you have it on you. Mm -hmm. And then also it's distributed more across the bottom of your neck and your back than it is on your neck. Ah. So it's not as much pulling you forward, it's pulling you down. Right, right. Ah, geez, I think that's my problem with posture. Yeah. It's like I kinda sure. I kinda I kinda do this. That hunch forward, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I noticed that today when I was eating lunch, I just, I'm just like hunching over the plate, eating a sandwich, you know? <laughs> so if I put you berry, sit up and you're like, oh, my back hurts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, even yeah. right now, like I know I'm like, I'm moving around a lot and I just, something I, I definitely should have worked on 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Here I am 31 years old and I'm like, I don't know how to sit properly. That and with, with Corona, it's like you're inside doing Zoom classes or Zoom <laughs> yeah. lessons. And so everything is inside sitting down. Your tendency to hunch is just way higher <laughs> right yeah so so what has that been like because you're in your second year yeah second at, year of the doctorate at florida state right mm -hmm. yeah so now that you your first year you were almost well half of it was in person right we yeah a little bit more than half like three uh, we probably only lost one half of a semester okay yeah and then now you're yeah, after spring break you're you're fully on zoom or are you a hybrid between the two um hybrid so both my classes are on zoom where i'm in class but then when i'm teaching and when i have my lessons we do it in person but oh, they yeah. gave us like bigger classrooms so the students i mean we can be far apart and there's no issue mm. 
Well, that's a funny thing because that relates to uh, the sax quartet that you played of mine. <laughs> yeah, really though. <laughs> I'm used to standing across the room from people. It's fine. That's so funny. Um, so then that, that's, that's something I'm kind of curious about is like with your students and talking about posture and stuff and playing mm -hmm. the baritone. Like, is that something that you bring on to students? At what point do students start playing the berry? It can be at any point. I mean, students start playing in quartet pretty much as soon as they get to college. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you, some may get assigned baritone, some may not. It, some may never play berry, you know. It's not always like a for sure thing. But, I mean, you could really start at any point. But typically, I don't have too many students playing berry in lessons. So I haven't come across that too often except for in quartet settings. Mm, okay. And most of the time when they are doing it in quartet settings, I'm just making sure that they don't like – move to the point where their armature is like getting all messed up because they're moving so much or they're standing a certain type of way. Gotcha. Okay. So then, so is the focus more on just embouchure development and everything? Yeah, I think since it is such a larger instrument compared to alto, I mean, the armature is essentially the same, but it's bigger, you know, so there mm -hmm. are things that you have to adjust. And so some people have trouble since it is so big, they kind of just let their armature flail a little bit. And mm -hmm. then you get like puff cheeks or your jaw moves a lot and you just have to remind them it's still an embouchure. You can't just let it go wild, you know? Right. Is, is that like what, what uh, I mean, this is obviously trumpet, but um, what was his name? Louis Armstrong, right? With the cheeks. With the cheeks. Is that is that a similar thing? or? It's, I mean, kind of, yeah. That's definitely something, you know, I don't really know too much about why he did that, but, you know, we <laughs> want to control those cheeks, not let extra air just sit in it. Right. Ah, yeah, that's true. So what is what is something then that you've noticed, like, with teaching? where um that students that is almost like a universal thing with students that you need to be focusing on this more hmm oh man there's so many things <laughs> uh, <laughs> i think something saxophone specific is we tend to move everything too much especially when it comes to armature and tongue position mm. um there's like kind of two schools of thought on this where it's like the idea of voicing and then so it's like Fred Hemke from Northwestern taught, didn't really focus on that much. He focused purely on musical expression. So he didn't really instruct, like, move your tongue this way or that way so much. But then you had Donald Sinta at University of Michigan who did teach voicing. And so there's, like, those two trains of thought on how to teach the saxophone. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that I actually had conversations with a lot with a lot of my teachers is how much do you actually instruct to move because most students will end up moving too much. Mm -hmm. So... The fun thing is it's really easy to diagnose, too, if they're moving too much because you can actually see their chin moving, like the bottom of their chin. Because every time you move your tongue, like, it moves your bottom of your chin. So it's really easy to diagnose when they're doing too much. That's wild. It's like a frog. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Some students play like that, too. So that's always kind of funny. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, through, through your studies, I mean, you've gone through... Um, I don't even know where you did your undergrad in South Carolina. South Carolina, yeah. Yeah, and then and then masters at Bowling Green, mm -hmm. and then now you're at Florida. Um, what has the the transition between the different studios been like in regards to like you said? There's two schools of thought with embouchure, yeah. right? So like, how has that been kind of going between the different different programs? It's very interesting. I I mean, I'm really glad. Like my first degree that was under the Donald Sinta School of Thought, and then both degrees now since then have been under Hemke, like they, mm -hmm. they've both been Hemke students. So I've gotten both perspectives and I think 
they both have valid arguments and i think the general trend is you need to do both but just not be so extreme you know <laughs> right like everyone voices it's just do you talk about it and how much do you talk about it and how much do you train it all that kind of stuff but i think it's been super useful to hear both because you know when i came out of my undergrad i feel like i came out super technically strong but i wasn't always listening to musical line and that's not any fault of my teacher it was just what i was where i was you know and then I got to Bowling Green and Sampin didn't really, Dr. Sampin didn't really talk about voicing at all. He just talked about musical expression. So that really helped me round out a lot. And then I felt like by now it's mostly just like detail work with Dr. Dybul and talking about making sure that everything we play is really musical and fixing those little things where I have tendencies of going too far in either direction. Mm, yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. I like, I like what you said about kind of uh, trying both things out, you know, because yeah. then your, um, you're sort of equipping, equipping yourself with more resources yep. in regards to finding solutions to potential problems or, uh, yeah, I guess solutions to problems with playing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, that kind of makes me think a little bit about, cause you know, you're, you're talking about going from one school to the next and the different the different, um, schools of thought with how to play is, is the whole, the whole idea with, uh, classical, like, um, uh, student student performers student composers just anyone studying music in college is the whole idea of when you go from your bachelor's to your master's studying with at a new school you know like to try to get that perspective to get a new mm. perspective i guess you know and yeah. um but then there are some people who kind of just stay in one place and go For sure. bachelor's master's doctorate you know yeah. i think the point you just mentioned is a good one to to uh to bring up for that sort of discussion. What sort of things have you have you kind of recognized that might be might be a fault in that, you know, or a flaw in that in that system? Yeah. One thing to consider when you are doing that is I mean, a lot of people go through in one school of thought, and that's totally fine. I think that gives you more consistency. One thing that I found in myself now is now that I have those perspectives, I'm kind of wrestling with like what I want to keep from both. So sometimes it can lead me to being indecisive, I guess, about mm. things or I mean, so it's just interesting having that wider perspective. Um, I feel like sometimes can be a hindrance whenever you're trying to make decisions on what you want to do. Like, for instance, I was playing a cello transcription for Dr. Dibel recently. And in the first three notes, I was doing something that involved the voicing to get it in tune. But uh, it was sacrificing some of the tone quality of one of my notes. So we literally spent like 30 minutes on three notes of the piece, just deciding what was appropriate, how to make it in tune, all that stuff. And like, it's pretty ridiculous that you can spend that long on three notes, but you know, it's like, that's the detail work that you get used to doing, of course, in graduate school. Right. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy to think about, especially if anyone who watches this, that's not a musician or anything. And they're like, you spent that yeah. much time playing three notes. Like, yeah maybe it wasn't that long but it was a while you know <laughs> oh yeah but that that is, i know that is the case i mean um you know when i was studying guitar and stuff i did it in my undergrad so i didn't i never went to the master's level of studying guitar yeah. or anything like that but um just talking to my my instructors about how long should i be doing scales or, or how long should i be working on like legato um exercises and stuff like yeah. that you know and um and it's not really so much like a prescription that you can you can um, like something you could prescribe, you know, because yeah. obviously every person's going to be different, right? For sure. But um, yeah, I don't know, man. It's it's a weird sort of thing in many ways, you know. Like 
like we spend all this time focusing on this one thing and then uh when we go into the performance and then the performance happens and it's like i did it yeah <laughs> like, you, you all that time in prepping for like five minutes of music yep <laughs> right right you know but then but then we also get so hard on ourselves too in performance yeah. where if we miss one note you know but then it's like well you got 99 percent of it yeah yeah you know like what is something that you think like you said before you have like a certain indecisiveness when it comes to figuring out which you sh which sort of avenue you should go down to correct something do you have a sort of method for that at all or like what do you think might be an effective way to for someone you know who might be having the same issue as you with that yeah i think this was part of the conversation i had with my professor last i think it was last week or a while ago um i think if you're having trouble with those decisions in the end the musical lines should be the one that dictate what decision you make like for instance when i was doing it without any input i was sacrificing a little bit of the musical line just to get that note you know in tune but in the end like i'm probably gonna get the note in tune but i need to focus on creating that smooth line so you know it's like i will keep it in tune obviously but i, I was f changing the tone quality to do it and that's like a sacrifice that you don't want to make so I guess for me, it's like making sure that I'm preserving the musical line, no matter what I'm doing. Mm. That's, that's probably the most important thing. That's I like that. I mean, you're you're sort of creating like a a, a hierarchy in order for you to get to the point where mm -hmm. you feel like the piece needs to be. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's fantastic, um, and it makes a lot of sense too. It, yeah. It can help eliminate, like you said, help eliminate those. Oh, what should I be doing to fix this? Yeah. And I, I think that's something that I've mentioned too when I was. Uh, uh, I had my assistantship at Bowling Green, which mm -hmm. is where we met, where we met. And, yeah. you know, we'll get into that in a moment, but um, uh, is, is telling people when they're working on their four part chorales or their theory and stuff is like, don't just sit there with a pencil and paper, go to the piano, play the line, see, how it sounds. see yeah. what it sounds like. Yeah. And that can help you understand like, oh, this is a two, six, five chord or something or like whatever, you know? Yeah. So, um, but, but yeah, so let's, Let's let's get into that a little bit. So we met at Bowling Green State University while we were getting our master's degrees. Mm -hmm. um, could you go with a little bit into the circumstances in which we met? Do you do you remember that? When did we meet? <laughs> I feel like Bowling Green, like you meet so many people all at once. Like the atmosphere there is like you go out to a bar and meet people, you know, like that's what you do in Bowling Green because there's pretty much nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of the like when did we meet? I can't remember, to be honest. I I don't exactly remember. I don't remember the specific moment, but mm. I know our the way we started interacting was through my sax quartet that I wrote. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, do you remember how that came to be? Um, I remember you didn't you approach the quartet and ask if you'd be willing to play it? I what that's I don't I don't know if I approached you guys. I had originally written a piece. See, this is the funny thing. And mm. uh, <laughs> I think your your expertise in the piece and as a saxophonist can clear this up much better than I could. <laughs> I originally wrote that piece for the undergraduate sax quartet. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's the reaction I thought. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> so so can you can you go into a little bit of detail as to why that probably was a bad idea? Um, there's a lot of notation that an undergrad may not have run into at that point. I mean, even for me as a master's student, there was a lot of notation that I wasn't 100% sure on either, just because mm -hmm. my undergrad wasn't super contemporary focused. But that was one thing. Um, second thing is communication is difficult in that piece, just because you're, you know, it's 
set up to where you're in four corners of a room. So you kind of have to communicate over like a span of 20, 30 feet, depending on how big the room is. Right. And then of course there's, you know, there was some difficult time signature changes with complicated interlocking patterns. So, you know, there's just a lot of little things that make the effect really awesome. But whenever you try and get maybe a younger group to do it, it could be difficult. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird, man. Whenever I think back on it, I'm like, God, I, I tried to write this for undergrads. Like <laughs> I was not effective in that at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they could get it. Like it, it would just take a little bit of deciphering and help from someone a little older, maybe. Right. Yeah. And that's not to say that like undergraduate saxophone performers are incapable of doing that yeah, either. Yeah, of course, yeah. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's not, it's a challenging sort of feat. Yeah. Even, even just the concept alone of, all four performers standing in the four corners of the audience. Yeah. Like that, that totally removes, or it makes, like you said, the communication is so much harder, you know, yeah. like, cause you're and not, especially for young quartets too. Cause who are, I mean, they have trouble communicating in close quarters. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. what, what was that like for you then? Like, how did you, how did you get to the point where you're like, okay, I feel better about this, whether you feel comfortable, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. So, at first, we, of course, did practice it close because, I mean, we had limited rehearsal space, but that helped just to solidify what we were listening for. Um, and then, of course, we score studied a lot and made sure that we knew, like there was, like I said, there's a lot of interlocking things where you have one person go, then the next, then the next, then the next on every quarter note or some equivalent. So we made sure that we marked in our scores where, like, cues from other people were coming in so that you could use your ears and not rely on your eyes since you are so far apart. Right. Yeah, that that I thought was really clever for you. Um, when I came to the first rehearsal where, where you where you all um, performed it, and I got mm -hmm. to hear it, it was the first time I actually got to hear it, you know, at all. Yeah. And um, I remember I sat right in the middle of all of you. Mm -hmm. And and you were you were probably spread out like at least 20 feet apart. Yeah. And that was the whole idea was to create that stereophonic effect with the sound mm -hmm. like, you know, soprano, alto, then the tenor enters, then Barry, you know. And um, when you had mentioned that you started in close quarters and then gradually worked your way outward, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, th that that right there already changes the experience of the piece because obviously the closer you are together, you can hear more of the nuance yeah, yeah. from player to player, you know. And then as For you sure. spread out, it's like that nuance is gone. Yeah. That and the interesting thing was when you are close together, you get an idea of what the piece sounds like as a whole. But mm. when I mean, when you are 20, 30 feet apart, being honest, like you're really only listening to yourself to a certain degree because like everything is so far away. Mm. So like, it was, it's a bummer that I never got to experience the piece in the middle because like you miss out on so much of that effect because, you know, it's just one voice essentially when you're that far away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that. um you know, with the recording we did with Stephen, yeah. Know, shout out to Stephen Hennessy. Um, he 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 recorded it using that microphone. Yeah. That can, um, uh, like capture, like omnipresent sounds. You know, like surround sound. Yeah. Uh, I still I, I don't think that recording is still even done yet, and but even to listen to experience that you'd have to be in a room that has surround sound speakers. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you just had like a two speaker setup, it still wouldn't be the same. Yeah, not quite. Yeah. You know, but hopefully, hopefully sooner or later we'll have that ready and then you could experience yeah. it, you know? Perfect. So I'm excited. <laughs> all that, all that hard work you could put into it and you'll be like, yeah, oh, that's what it sounds like. I finally like. get to listen to it. Yeah. 
<laughs> or it might be one of those instances where you work on three notes for an hour and then you perform it. You're like, there it is. Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's over. Yep. <laughs> there's nothing left. Yeah. That, that was uh, amazing though. I mean, yeah, I have to say, man, it was awesome coming into that rehearsal. And then mm -hmm. I know you guys, I think you performed it two times and, and the, each time it was like, you just nailed it. The, you put it together in two weeks, I think too, right? Yeah, luckily, I mean, really the hardest part of that was putting it together, like the notes and I mean, all that stuff, half of it, you're making sounds through your mouthpiece. So it's not like it's technically difficult at all. Um, so it was just putting it together. And luckily, we had a group that was strong enough that could put it together really quickly. Yeah, solid players. I mean, uh, Claire, Sally on mm -hmm. alto, right? Uh, I can't even remember at this point. I think so. Yeah. 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 She was on alto. Uh, Soren Ham on soprano. Mm hmm. You, Mr. Jonathan Kiersby on tenor? Yeah. Right. And then Piapon, uh, how do you say his last name? Asawan Jonakit. Asawan Jonakit. I really hope that was right. <laughs> his last name is very hard to pronounce. That's all right. I, every time I see it, I'm like, there's there's A's and then there's, there's a lot of letters in there. There's a lot of letters. It's, it's a hard one. But uh, yeah. uh, he was on the baritone. Yeah. And yeah, you were all just like serious rock stars about that. You know, it was you yeah, handled it. Was a lot it. of fun. I, I mean, again, like that was the first time I'd played anything like that. So for me, it was like a whole new world of sounds. It was fun. That's one of the things I, I hear all the time. And my personal experience of Bowling Green definitely reflects is is the yeah. music and, and contemporary styles and stuff like that. What what was your like coming to Bowling Green? What was what was that like for you? It was definitely an interesting transition because, I mean, we played, I mean, there was contemporary music at my undergraduate, but typically it was the graduate students doing it um, because we would get through our standards. You know, you got to get through the standards before you move on to that in some, you know, some cases. Um, so I really hadn't played anything that was too out there. Mm -hmm. um, so coming to Bowling Green, I knew that was going to be the case. And now something I was excited about because I wanted to experience it. And I, at first I thought, oh, I don't actually like this stuff. But then when you get there, you get immersed into it you start to understand it more and you start to understand that it's not like a melody, obviously you're listening for sounds and you learn to appreciate the sounds of things more. So I had a lot of fun kind of diving into that at Bowling Green. Cause I mean, it's just everywhere. Like <laughs> you can't avoid it at Bowling Green. It's, but it's, it was really fun. I really appreciated that experience. Yeah, that's, that's so true. I mean, um, I think one thing is, is like you said, you, you can't avoid it like not in a bad way, but just like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. always happening. Um, yeah. There's always performances. And that's one thing. Yeah. Always yeah. guest artists, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, especially with like the new music festival and whatnot. Yeah. Which is happening this month. Um, I don't, I usually at the end of the month, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Now it's going to be virtual. So oh, interesting. That is interesting. Um, but what, what, so what is something with, with Bowling Green, like that, I mean, I don't want to say just like your your most memorable experience or something like that, but like things that it was like the the fact that this happens makes me feel like I'm in the right place. Yeah, um, I think the constant collaboration with the comp majors was probably one of the highlights for me, mm -hmm. just because like number one, y'all were fun people and it was a lot of fun hanging out with you. But on number two, it was like you guys were constantly outputting stuff and constantly like encouraging us to play it. So it's. I mean, we never had a shortage of music to play, you know, <laughs> and it was always like fun adventures trying to decipher them and play them for you guys. And like the Precepta concerts and stuff like that. I mean, there was just constant opportunities to perform. So even though you are in the middle of a cornfield in Ohio, like that little ecosystem that is Bowling Green is very self-sufficient when it comes to 
providing opportunities to perform. And that's something that, I mean, I, I don't think many other schools have anything like that. So that was a lot of fun. And I think that's probably one of the things that I appreciated the most. Yeah, you know, I, I have to, I, I'm totally with you on that. And I've heard from other people who uh, have gone to schools that are uh, actual conservatories. And, mm-hmm. and, and they said like, oh yeah, we had two guest speakers this year. And I'm like, dude, we had like three in one month, man. Yeah. Like, you know, so it, it, I think that's a really good way that you put it. Um, and, and one thought that I have, cause you know, obviously being a composer, I didn't have this sort of experience, but mm-hmm. being a performer, a, a graduate student at Bowling Green, mm-hmm. what was it, what was the challenge like of balancing coursework, like studio obligations, assistantship, if you had one, mm-hmm. Uh, like performing works by composers, like, yeah. What was that like for you? Um, it was not too bad actually. Um, the coursework at Bowling Green for your master's degree really isn't that intense. I mean, it's a master's degree, so you only have to take you know a certain amount of credits every semester. It's not a lot of work. Um, and my assistantship was the Woodwind Methods teaching assistantship. So I taught it like twice a week at eight a.m. And outside of that, I had some like organizational work and lockers and all that kind of stuff. So it really wasn't too much work for school itself. Um, the biggest thing for me was I came out of my undergrad realizing, realizing that my CV was just bare. You know, I had done a couple stuff, but I hadn't really commissioned anything. I'd maybe done two, two, three premieres of something, just not too many things. So at Bowling Green, my focus that whole time was just performing as many times as you can. So I made a point to do a recital every semester, even though they weren't super heavy recitals, I made sure to do recitals every semester. I tried to participate in a lot of the Percepta things just to bulk up my resume. Right. Were you, um, and that makes a lot of sense. And I definitely want to, I want to get into that a little bit, but um, you were involved with that. Uh, was it, what piece was it? In the new music festival, it was like a big production. Was it the the, the Reich? What was uh I don't think I was part of anything that big no. for the New Music Festival. We did an octet one year, and we did a quartet and maybe a quintet piece. I, won't, I can't even remember what we played, to be honest. Mm, okay. I don't think I was in anything that big. I might be thinking of my first year then. Yeah. There was, there was, I think it was like a piece for, I don't know, like 15 saxophones or something. And supposedly it was the second time it's ever been performed. And it was first performed hmm. in France, I think. Interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, I wasn't part of that one. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of Bowling Green is just like, yeah. everything happens and then That's the truth. you're in the world, you know? Yep. Yep. I so, feel bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so can you, can you, for anyone who, any performers who might, you know, who are listening to this or watch this, you know, mm-hmm. Um, can you go into the reason why bulking up your CV, like you said before, like why that matters? Yeah, well, I knew that I wanted to eventually get into a doctoral program and hopefully teach at a collegiate level. And that's, I mean, obviously the things they look for are like performance things that you do, service things that you do, and um, research that you do. So, I mean, I had done minimal research. Obviously, you're in your undergrad, so that's not a huge focus. I had done service stuff. That was fine but I had not performed outside of a school setting, which is again, probably the most important thing because everyone does recitals. Everyone does things that are required by the school, like ensembles, Mm -hmm. but they want to see that you're doing extra, you know? So for me, it was really important to show that I was 
active to future degrees and future job applications. So I made sure that, you know, I was just performing all the time and commissioning stuff and playing a lot, but I don't know. There was no, like, that's pretty much the biggest reason was because I knew I wanted to continue in school. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that, that, that is uh that is very useful for sure. Um, with, with services, you mean like community service sort of stuff or? Well, not necessarily that, but like, um, like for instance, if there's like an organization that you're a leadership for, or if you were, you know, stuff like that to show, cause I, I remember someone telling me, it might've been the flute professor here at Florida state that that is a p- large part of what they look at when you're applying to job applications, um, mm-hmm. that you're actually doing stuff to serve the community, you know, like putting on concerts for people or, you know, something like that. So that it's not just this little bubble and that you're like attracting people other than musicians, you know? Right. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that, that's definitely, uh, I think one thing that you said before is is really pivotal is is um oh, what'd you say exactly um oh I don't remember what it, what it was but basically just like to bulk up your CV showing that you're doing mm-hmm. more than yep. what is what is required right yeah and for sure. and it, that sort of makes me think a lot about um, people who are, are going to schools or at least applying to schools that are like the, uh, the name schools, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, I got into Juilliard. I'm good to go. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that statement? <laughs> um, <laughs> if that's all you're going off of, I think you're a little screwed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it's great to go to those schools. I'm not bashing any name schools at all. I promise. But like, if all you're doing is going to that school and kind of coasting, I don't think you're going to be successful. You know, you have to, like this is something that my professor here at Florida State has been talking a lot with in the studio. He uses the words consuming the curriculum um, as a negative in as in you're just doing the bare minimum of what is required of you. And his whole point was that he wants our studio to be one that exceeds the curriculum and does more than is required so that you can actually make an impact, you know, in any way, shape or form, have an impact on something, you know. Well, right there, man, like you just gave a great uh, testimonial for your school. Yeah. <laughs> or at least for the sax studio you know yeah for so sure. anyone listening who's a saxophonist right now like apply to fsu yep. that that but that that i think is really important you know a lot of it people is. um and yeah like you said not to say that going to juilliard or any of these schools harvard or whatever it's like about great do that that's awesome please you know um but to assume that to to assume that having that that stamp is going to get you the opportunities you're, you you're hoping to achieve that doesn't, mm-hmm. that doesn't, you know? Yeah, for it sure. Can, it can help. You know, it can help for sure. Oh, I'm definitely not denying that, but it's not the end all, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And, and I, that's why, that's why I wanted to kind of go into it a little bit more when you said you have to do more than just what the curriculum is, is saying, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's a really great um, uh, sort of, I don't know what the word is like just way to live in general. You know, mm-hmm. if, if, if you apply that to other aspects of your life, you know, like your, your, your relationship with your significant other, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like at the bare minimum, you're exclusive with them. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's at the bare minimum, bare minimum. Yep. <laughs> you know, but then you also need to like try, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's, but then, uh, going above and beyond like the whole um in in in, in entrepreneurial circles they say uh um, under promise over deliver yep you know so it's like hey man i'll cut your lawn for you 
but then it's like not only do you cut your lawn their lawn you like make the edges look really clean Mm -hmm. you know you take up all the sticks and stones you put them away and then all of a sudden they have like a brand new lawn yeah yeah for sure i don't know where i i went to lawn like (laughs) maintenance or landscape it works the analogy works it's fine (laughs) yeah oh my god but so okay so we, we talked about like cvs and stuff and building that up and then in order to um position yourself better so that you can end up in a doctoral program and a hopefully and hopefully sooner or later become a professor right yeah so what has your um experience been thus far in a doctoral program that it wasn't exactly what you had thought of and i don't mean that in a bad way either like whatever your expect expectations were going into it and then it was something different hmm that's a good question i feel like i had a pretty good grasp on what it would be like because I've been in quartets and I've, you know, known a lot of doctoral students. So I had the gist of what it would be like. Mm-hmm. I think something specifically at Florida state, I kind of knew I was getting into, um, the studio here is pretty large just cause it's a large school and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just how it is. Right. But that means the graduate students have a lot more workload. I think, um, when it comes to our teaching load, you know, there's just more students, which is again, nothing wrong. It's actually a great experience and I'm loving it. But I think the first year I was here, I think that was a challenge for me cause I was teaching I think 14 students, not all of them were hour long lessons a week, but I was teaching a quartet and I guess it was a quartet and 13 students. Um, so there was just a lot of scheduling stuff you had to do and then finding time to practice. And then my quartet was trying to do some competitions and perform a lot of difficult music. So I think that balance was difficult because master's degree, like, like I said, the coursework was not a lot. There was a lot of time in your day where you could dedicate to practice, do whatever you need to do, function, be a human being. But when you get to your doctorate, you know, like you kind of have like these hours that you get that are so precious sometimes. Mm. COVID right now, it's not as bad, of course, since everything is online. You don't have that travel time to deal with. But that first year here, it was just like, oh, my gosh, there's so much you need to do. So I was at school like 12 hours a day, you know. Right. Okay. Insane. Yeah. Well, that's definitely a lot. Do do you mind if we kind of keep going with that to give people some more insight who might be thinking about doctoral programs or or at least on the fence with it? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned like the coursework is a lot more and depending on where you're, where you're studying, uh, your teaching load might be a lot too. Yeah. What, um, do you have a general idea of like what your, your weekly schedule looks like in regards to like how much you have to dedicate to teaching, how much you have to dedicate to doing your schoolwork, how much time you have to practice and performance? Like, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of hard because COVID again, it's a little different now. Um, the coursework here is not actually that bad. It's mm-hmm. more work than a master's, but it's not by much. Mm-hmm. They're just harder classes generally because you're at a DMA level. Um, but generally my week, I have currently eight students and I and two of them are every other week. So I guess I have seven students a week. And so that's seven hours of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, that's typically, I think a little bit more than the average graduate student is teaching. Um, I'm not sure because I haven't been to other programs, but from what I've heard, I feel like that's a a couple more students than most programs. I'm very happy to have it though, just because it's like you're in a studio setting. Like this is, I have a job, you know, like I'm teaching students. I have almost a full studio of students. So it's great experience for me. I'm actually enjoying it a lot because I love teaching, but you know, it's different than most programs because it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So that was, you know, a, a huge chunk of my week is eight hours of teaching just, you know, regular students. And then, um, if you're in a quartet, 
quartets can rehearse anywhere from like five hours a week to you know however many hours if you're doing competitively so last semester and or last year in general we were we were rehearsing one or two hours a day so that was a huge chunk of time also was just ensemble work mm-hmm. and then you have your coaching of course on top of that um regular practice time anywhere from two to three four hours a day who knows depending on the day depending on how many time much time and how much energy you have yeah (laughs) so you know there's just like a lot of it's like individually it doesn't seem like a lot but when you put it together that's just a lot of hours in the day of being in a practice room or in a rehearsal class-wise not so much but right yeah and then we also have to account for our time commuting you know do you live on campus are you i'm about two miles off of campus but here (laughs) last year i mean Florida State, they have free parking for everyone, which is nice, but that means everyone parks. So mm. it's if you don't get to school by like 8.30, you kind of have to hunt for parking or pay for a meter. Right. So like you kind of have to just get there early or else you're going to suffer, drive around for 40 minutes, you know. <laughs> so there's like little things like that, too, where you kind of have to just get there at a certain time or else you just won't be able to find parking. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, my, I mean, I know a lot of colleges like that even when yeah. you pay you pay for parking. Yeah, seriously. You know, my undergrad, I went to Montclair State University in New Jersey. Yeah. And um, the, the time when I started going there, I think it was 2011, um, they, they built up parking structures, you know, so they had different levels to park on. And, you know, no one wants to park on like the eighth level. Yeah. You know, so that was always available. Yeah. But, but all like the ground parking and like the first two levels of the, uh, the parking garages filled up like yeah. by 830. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> yeah so, we have multiple like four-story ones that fill up by 8 30. <laughs> right yeah man i mean people want to they get the good spot you know yeah. uh it's it's the way of the wolf i guess <laughs> yeah i enjoy that's one nice thing about the new atmosphere at campus is parking is very easy so that's right one thing i don't mind so much <laughs> there's there's some interesting silver linings with the, yeah with the covid you know yep for sure I mean, it's it's um yeah, I, I think like we were saying before is um, being more self-aware of your mental health is one of them. Yeah. Because all of us have been affected uh, yeah. and our mental health has been affected greatly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's such a weird balance. And um, is that something that you've experienced with your students? Like having students who are like sort of, you know, burning out because of it. Yeah, I definitely feel like last semester was way worse with that just because it was kind of abrupt and no one was ready for it. Mm. So, I mean, even I had trouble keeping on top of things at the end of last semester just because you were just kind of like thrown out of school so quickly. But this semester, it hasn't been so bad. Um, I like to check in on my students like at the beginning of the lessons and be like, hey, was this a good week or a bad week? You know, like, how are we going to be doing in this lesson? Just so I can like get a gauge of like, should I be you know strict teacher today or should i be a little bit more lax you know right just because like i do want to keep that in mind like this is hard and students have rough weeks sometimes so i try and be a little bit more forgiving without just kind of letting them abuse that but that's the hard part is figuring out when it becomes they're abusing that power versus it's actually been a rough week you know i don't think anyone's abusing that right now i don't think i've had that happen but i'm always thinking about that you know right right and remember all all of jonathan's students you are all amazing (laughs) <laughs> you're Jonathan great. I love you, you all. so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a weird thing. It's a weird time, and that's that's a really great thing that you're doing is is checking in on them to make sure like how are you feeling this week? Are you okay? You yeah. know, 
what is something that you think when you look back on to what was it like six months ago seven months ago when the quarantine started mm-hmm. we all had this crazy transition um what is something you think you could have done a little bit more smoothly in regards to pivoting oh man that's a good question i think i kind of let myself flail when it came to routine um, I like, I think I, stru- I, I function much better when there's a, a structured routine in mm-hmm. my daily life. Whenever I have too much free time or I have time that I don't have dedicated to a certain thing, it's really hard for me to stay on track because like, you know, there's distractions in life. So I think I kind of gave myself too long of a gap between when the quarantine started and when I brought my routine back. So that just kind of made it so I never quite got my good routine back it was always like a kind of secondary routine after that especially last semester just because it was again it was really abrupt right but i think making sure that i kept a routine would have been really helpful gotcha yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense man i mean it's it's such a like i said it's a weird transition you know yeah and and none of us are <laughs> were ready for it or like knew yeah. how to handle it you know um, for real but that's, that's a good, that's a good way to kind of, you know, recognize some, you know, how you can handle it if it were to happen again, or even just in yeah. general, like recognizing the importance of maintaining a routine, yeah. you know, because then, cause that is the one thing you can control. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's like, um, uh, I, I know how, how difficult it is for a lot of people seeing like things that are happening in the, in the world today with politics mm-hmm. and, and the environment and all this other stuff and whatnot. Um, there's a certain point, I think, where uh, if you if you at least have your own life in balance in some capacity, like a schedule, mm-hmm. you'll you'll feel a little bit better, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm coming from a point of uh, uh, my own, you know, it's my own sort of perspective and experience where other yeah. people they're, they're going to have something different and that's fine. Yeah. And know? I'm sure it's different for everyone too, just because we're different people, but you know, yeah, me personally, I just function better with the routine. Exactly. Yeah. Me too. Me too. One thing. So one thing that I, I'm, I want to bring up because it's something that still affects me today. Mm. And I don't know if you've had this experience or not, but um, what is your sleep like during school when you're in grad school and doctor <laughs> program, do you sleep well? This is a very serious question too. <laughs> oh yeah, no, for sure. Um, there are good weeks and there are bad weeks. I will say that there are certain days, like I've had to make a point of like putting my phone away from the bed just so I'm not watching videos until late, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so there's certain things and certain habits that I'm trying to develop to make sure that I can get that consistent sleep routine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like sleeping a lot. I'm one of those people that enjoys sleep a lot. So I try and make sure that I get like eight hours of sleep or else I will get very grumpy. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, it's important that I get sleep. Uh, there's certain days where like my brain's racing and I'll just take some melatonin to help calm mm-hmm. it down a little bit. But generally, I think my sleep is not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's important, too, because I know in grad school, like like for me, it was it was it was a challenge, like trying to get this done and I'm grading this assignment and like thinking about um, this uh, event that has to happen and stuff, you know? And yeah. so I, I, I imagine that a lot of other like music students are, are having a similar sort of issue, mm-hmm. but I don't really hear people talk about it, you yeah. know? And, it, and it's just sort of like laughed about. It's like, oh yeah, I'm not sleeping. I don't sleep at all. Like the way the world yeah. is, I can't sleep. But, yeah. but when you talk about the fact that we're transi- you know, going through the quarantine transition, 
like you said, your schedule, it's like the amount of time you have to spend practicing and rehearsing and working with students and coursework. And then it's like to have all that energy, you also need to have all that rest too. Yeah, for sure. It's so pivotal. Yeah. But um, I think the phone thing is a big one. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of us struggle with like having our phones with us laying in bed, you know, like yeah, for getting, sure. getting that fix. Yeah. My, the, the way I look at it is if, I mean, your brain is functioning the least when you're on your phone or watching TV, cause you can literally, that's when it's like actually functioning the least instead of when like opposed to sitting there and doing nothing, you're actually thinking a lot more, your brain's a lot more active. Mm. So if for me, whenever I'm on my phone a lot, right before bed, my brain's off when I'm watching whatever I'm watching. But then as soon as I turn that phone off and actually try and sleep, that's when it kind of kicks on and then it goes into overdrive because I've been ignoring it for so long. Yeah. So I have to be super careful about what I do at night so that my brain doesn't kick on when I'm actually trying to sleep. See, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Cause I have the yeah. same problem, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and I imagine that, and that's like great self-awareness on your part too, for recognizing, like, I need to be very strategic about, my routine yeah. before bed, you know? And yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, it's something that you, I don't know if we're even really taught very much, like how to sleep, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely not in schools for sure. But you know, important. but at, at the same time, it's like no one anticipated social media and technology and stuff to, yeah, to, to get to where it is. So it's yeah. like, you kind of can't shift there, but yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you, you said the things you said, though. Um, yeah. And I know you got to get going very soon. But I want to I want to bring up sax reel. Let's talk oh, about yeah. sax reel. Sure. Your your, uh, your podcast can, can you tell us a little bit about what, what sax reel is all about? Yeah, so um, the inspiration behind the podcast was that my professor at Bowling Green, Dr. Sampin, um, he's had a lot of really unique experiences in life. He's been able to do a lot of things that many, many people were not able to do. Um, like he traveled to the USSR and like performed there and did a lot of cool stuff in France and all over the world. And he just has this wealth of knowledge and stories that I really wanted to tap into. So I thought I would start chronicling people's stories and thoughts on pedagogy and thoughts on studio culture and what they're working on and everything to try and help promote them a little bit. So essentially what I did was I got in contact with a bunch of um, saxophonists from around America and I interviewed them and got some stories, some fun, some more serious, you know, a wider range, I guess, um, of stories from them. And then I made it into a podcast. (laughs) That's amazing. I love that. There's so much that you're offering with that. Like for one thing, the guests on this show, it's like their legacies can continue. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That was a huge part of what I wanted to capture. Yeah, that's 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 such a, a, a precious thing right there. Yeah, because mm-hmm. and, and that's that's so true is that the people who we study with, like our mentors, our professors, whatever you want to say, it's like they have these experiences that you know when you talk to them, it's like wow, you got to hang out with that person, right? Yeah, and, and eat cheesecake. You knew this composer, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and Sampin, yeah. of course, him and him and Marilyn Shrewd, like yeah, they've been everywhere. Their history is just uh, vast, you know. Yep. They've yep. done so many things with so many people. Um, yeah, so you you recently finished your first season in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I finished season one. I'm taking a little bit of a break now, but it'll come back hopefully towards the end of the semester. Gotcha. Yeah, man. Well, hey, got to have that mental, uh, keep that mental energy, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's sometimes just... exhausting setting up those meetings with people who are also busy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I know. 
Yeah, I was doing some very kind of uh, over the phone interviews with some pedagogues and, mm-hmm. and it was, uh, it wasn't terribly challenging, but it was still like, you kind of have to work with their schedule a lot of the time, yeah, yeah. you know, and that's okay. But yeah, um, not the worst. It's just a lot of, you know, time. <laughs> yeah. So, so you had your first season of Sax Reel. Mm-hmm. You're going into your second, you know, at some point. Um, what are some things that you sort of learned in going through this process? Because you've never had a podcast before, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is the first one. Yeah. So, so what has it been like? Like, it's like, oh, wow, I have this thing now. And, and, and now you have not only like the experience, but the knowledge of doing it and stuff. Mm-hmm. What are, what are some things now? It's like, you don't have to give anything away either. Like, yeah. I, I don't want you to, uh, I don't want you to kind of spell anything like, oh, season two is going to have these things or whatever, but. Yeah. Well, uh, it's not even planned yet. So that's not possible. <laughs> all right. Oh, there you go. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. So what has that been like for you? Uh, it's definitely been an interesting process. I think since my podcast um, is mostly based off of the, the, I mean, people I'm interviewing, it largely depends on their input, um, which is one thing that I'm going to hopefully maybe adjust just because it makes it a little bit too free reign sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, naturally there's some people who like to talk a lot and there's some people who don't. So sometimes you like have to drag it out of them or you have to slow them down, you know, any number of things when it comes to interviewing people. So I think the biggest challenge for me was kind of guiding the conversation in a timely manner and getting to all the points and making sure that at least some part was like really, really interesting, you know, really applicable, really useful information so that every episode had some like gem in it, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's what I liked. I mean, I listened to a few episodes and, and, uh, and it was like, it it just felt really kind of natural, you know? Mm -hmm. And like the interaction was very genuine too. Yeah. Which I think is important. Like a lot of people, they want that authenticity that like that genuine, you know, um, whereas where you watch like, I don't know, an interview on like NBC news, mm-hmm. like the, the, it, it sometimes can feel kind of sterile in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Y- you know, sure. but luckily I, I mean, I started with a lot of people that I knew or people that I was more comfortable talking to mm-hmm. just so that it was easier for me. You know, it's like the first podcast, <laughs> first interview that I'd done. And one thing that I have to be very conscious of is I'm a fast talker. So I really have to think sometimes about slowing down. Mm. And that, I think that's one thing that I need to feel, focus on more in the second season. Cause there's sometimes I'm listening to myself when I'm editing the audio, I'm just like, Holy cow, how do you talk so fast? <laughs> it's a struggle. Yeah. I, I understand it, man. I mean, uh, you, you've known me for a few years. We've had plenty of nights together, you know, yeah. getting drinks and stuff like that. And I get loud. You know, yeah. <laughs> I get loud. And even in this conversation, I know I've gotten loud, but uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to temper yourself, you know? It is. It's weird. <laughs> it's a different format. You just kind of have to, I figured it would get better with time just practicing. So it has, but still something I have to think about a little too actively for comfort. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so weird. You know, it's like we've lived this life for so long so far, at least a few decades of life. And we're still trying to understand how to talk. Right. I think it's just the fact that you're recording it, you know, that adds this level of stress. And like, even if I'm talking to someone I know really well, there's like, oh, I have to make sure I ask good questions and I can't stumble over my words and all this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, I I mean, you know, from what I heard, man, it sounded great. I'm I'm excited about it and it's cool. And you're definitely providing, like I said, a great, um, you're offering a great service for, for the sax community, you know, and, 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 and the community in general. I mean, hearing people talk about their experiences, Mm-hmm. and and how they handle things and and what they've done and stuff i mean yeah yeah man but 
So uh, I think we could probably end it right there. But if there's anything else you want to tag on, any any like um, I don't know, any any events or any sort of things you got coming up, or uh, uh, <laughs> some some little nugget of advice for someone, maybe that's looking into doctoral programs or you know that sort of thing. Sure, I can give some advice on that. Um, I think for me, one thing that I didn't do in my master's was prepare for the interviews, <laughs> and I applied to places without thinking through i mean i applied to great schools but i didn't think about all the reasons why i wanted to go there beforehand i was like oh it's a great school great teacher i'll apply you know so i think doing your research on the schools is like i mean it's so crucial and like finding out and like trying to remember other faculty members names is also really important because then you can show whoever you're applying for that you know not just about them but also the other people that you will potentially be working with or working under you know so learning little details like that, what ensembles you can play in, what events there are, all that kind of stuff makes a huge difference mm. um, in the interview process. And then the other thing that I did, I maybe went a little too overboard with this, but I had like a list of 30 some questions just to show interest. You know, that's a huge part about the interview is making sure that you show interest in the school as a whole. So I asked a ton of questions about the professor, how the studio runs, how the instrument library works all that stuff all um how the school is run just to show them number one that like i can play after that audition but also that i'm really genuinely interested in this specific school that's great man that's great sort of in a way that it's almost like uh, you're also interviewing them oh 100 yeah. yeah i mean when i go into it i mentally for myself that's what i say to make myself less nervous just because it's like it's a different framework you're in a whole different mindset if you say i'm interviewing you do i want to study with you you know <laughs> <laughs> and of course like you need to do it hum in a humble way like don't be a dick about it but like make sure that you are like not psyching yourself out and being like am i worthy you know that yeah mentality is just not healthy oh my god that's fantastic man well that, that's a great spot right there to leave it off so um sure. i'm going to stop the recording but thank you so much for doing this jonathan this is awesome yeah no problem <laughs> Thank you.